Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The governor has officially declared a special session to deal with a handful of COVID-related issues, and lawmakers have thoughts on what they'll be taking up and what will be left on the table. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week I sit down with Representative Greg Cheney, Chairman of the House Judiciary and Rules Committee, to discuss liability legislation that lawmakers will consider at the upcoming special legislative session next week. Senator Lori Denhartog tells us about education-related issues she wishes lawmakers could consider, and Representative Melissa Wintrow tells us why she doesn't think a special session is necessary at all right now. But first, on Friday, Governor Brad Little held a press conference at the Idaho Food Bank in Boise to address food insecurity across Idaho. Many Idahoans have experienced a job loss or loss in income since the spring, making it harder to afford the most basic of human needs, food. As a result, more and more Idaho families are turning to their local food banks and food assistance programs during the coronavirus. For a child, hunger makes it hard to focus and hard to learn. That's why the state of Idaho just approved $2.5 million in coronavirus relief funds to support the Idaho Food Bank and families in need all across our great state. Our Coronavirus Financial Advisory Committee voted one week ago to approve the funding request and I approve the recommendation on the same day. We'll have more on the ongoing economic effects of COVID-19 on families such as housing and food insecurity in coming episodes of Idaho Reports. Also Friday, Little announced that though the state has made progress on some coronavirus metrics, Idaho will once again remain in stage four for the next two weeks. I'd also like to provide Idahoans with an update on COVID-19 metrics statewide. Idaho will remain in stage four for another two weeks because the number of hospital admissions of sus suspected and confirmed COVID-19 patients is higher than we'd like across the state. However, over the past two weeks, metrics have improved in other areas. We're seeing downward trend in overall confirmed cases, test positivity rates, and emergency department visits of patients with COVID-like illnesses. We have su sufficient ventilators, ICU beds, and hospital PPE statewide. And the number of people admitted to hospitals is stabilizing. This demonstrates our efforts to preserve the healthcare capacity and slow the spread of coronavirus, that those efforts are all working. And I'll refer to my much-loved graph. Canyon, Ada, Kootenai, Bonneville, and Twin Falls counties continue to be hotspots for virus activity. And I support mayors and public health officials in their decisions to mitigate spread at the local level. 
To watch the full press conference, visit the Idaho PTV Facebook page. On Wednesday, Governor Little issued a proclamation officially convening a special session to consider election and liability issues. The special session begins Monday, August 24th. On Thursday, I spoke to Representative Greg Cheney, co-chair of the Judiciary and Rules Working Group, about the proposed bill on liability and what it would do and whether there are still protections for students, workers, and patients if it passes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Representative Cheney. Can you walk us through what the proposed legislation on limited liability does? Absolutely, Melissa. Uh, really, we don't want people acting irresponsibly. We don't want to shield uh, behavior that um, is just so far beyond the pale that people should know better than to engage in that behavior or to be as, as sloppy as they are. What the legislation would do would be to create a higher standard for a lawsuit um, because of, of the transmission of coronavirus, COVID-19, or if there's a COVID-20, a COVID-21, a COVID-22, heaven forbid. Uh, and it, But that heightened protection has a few asterisks next to it. Um, the first requirement is that people have to make a good faith attempt um, to determine what the appropriate course of action is. So they simply ignoring it isn't appropriate. Um, we're not saying that in every situation a change to a particular protocol or practice needs to happen, but you need to at least um, reflect on what it is that needs to be done. That good faith standard is very well established in, in uh, tort law. Um, Courts already know what to do with it, know how to apply it. It's, it's not a mystery. The second thing that must happen is you need to be in compliance with the law or at least be making a good faith attempt. So what this does is that prevents the nursing home, for example, from ignoring the guidelines put out by health and welfare, or not the guidelines, excuse me, the regulations put out by health and welfare. And that'll, I think, come up later, um, why that distinction is important. Um, they can't ignore that. They have to be doing their best to comply. Uh, same thing with your hospital and uh, the control of infectious disease in a hospital. They're likewise regulated. And so if they are not making a good faith attempt to follow the regulations, um, then they don't get the protection. And what the protection looks like is you don't get to sue until your, uh, the person or entity company's behavior rises to the level of recklessness. I'm, I'm curious about the idea of recklessness. You know, for people to be considered liable in this legislation, the claimant must show that that entity must or uh, did act with willful, willful or reckless misconduct. What exactly does constitute willful or reckless misconduct under the proposal, and why isn't it already covered by existing law? Well, you can already sue for reckless or, or willful misconduct, but you can also sue for negligence. Um, we redefined or clarified rather the definition of reckless conduct just this past session. And the definition essentially boils down to you knew there was, you knew or should have known that there was a danger and you proceeded in a way that you knew or should have known would put this other person at risk. So it's, it's really a new or should have known standard. Um, being able to sue at the level of negligence, that's what would a reasonable person do under the circumstances? That's the test. If you fall below the reasonable person test, if you did something less than what a reasonable person did, you're liable. 
the trouble that school administrators, businesses, and others are facing during this pandemic is as the science evolves and more is learned, what was the appropriate steps three weeks ago may not be the appropriate steps three weeks from now. And unfortunately, two years from now, when uh, a, a case arising from coronavirus may be finally coming before a jury, you will have a jury who is unable to escape their hindsight bias and look back and say, wow, you really shouldn't have done that. Um, that's not what we want. We don't want people worried uh, when there seems to be a, an overabundance of information out there if they follow the wrong suggestion that they're somehow going to be on the hook. Over the past few months especially, I've heard from several workers around the state off the record who say that they're being pressured to return to work despite having a positive case in their household, but they themselves can't secure a test because of testing shortages or being pressured to come back to work under unsafe circumstances or when they themselves have tested positive but their 14-day quarantine isn't officially up. Uh, and I'm curious, these are, these are workers who are worried about losing their jobs. They haven't wanted to go on the record, but are their stories reaching the legislature and are they being considered when you're discussing uh, proposals like this? Sure, and we've been clear in the legislation to clarify that this is not intended to interfere with workman's comp at all. Now, as far as the leave for, um, positive COVID-19 testing, that leave policy is a big part of the original CARES Act at the federal level. And so anything in that bill in Congress would preempt and override anything that we're doing. Um, so we feel confident that because of the protections in CARES, plus our specific exemption of, of uh, workers' comp from being affected by this piece of legislation, um, that those issues will, at a minimum, not be negatively affected. I'm curious, too, about the multiple school districts around the state that uh, have decided to open against the advice of their public health districts. And already we're seeing quarantines before some of these school districts have even opened. I'm thinking specifically the Payette School District, whose entire football team has been quarantined and on the same day that they found out about that quarantine, the school board still decided to reopen schools in the green against the advice of their public health district. Would this legislation shield school districts that act like that? Well, I, I hate to comment on any specific uh, district that's um, working through that at the moment, but I would say um, like all good law school questions, the answer is it depends. Um, we do have a provision in there that says that guidelines alone cannot be used to establish negligence um, or, or a violation. Um, that's uh, addressing a legal concept where you can take a law or a, a regulation, for example, the law that says you have to stop at a stop sign, and all you have to prove that the person was negligent or, or you're entitled to, to sue that person is prove that they violated that law. Well, if it's a guideline or a regulation, you don't get the shortcut, but that doesn't mean that the guideline or regulation can't help you prove what they knew and should have known and moved on anyway. You um, just don't get to stop it at simply proving that they failed to follow the guideline and therefore they are financially responsible. Um, you still have to, to prove that because they failed to follow that guideline, 
they were either reckless or um, if in the health districts that um, and are willing to, to make it a, an order or a regulation, um, the cities that have made it an ordinance, uh, you would not be making a good faith attempt to comply with those uh, if you're, uh, you're not following the ordinances. So there's a big difference in the bill between what's a, an ordinance or a statute um, and what is just a suggestion. I'm also curious too, the legislation ex uh, specifically excludes um, China's government, their proxies and agents and affiliates. Does the legislature anticipate legal action against China? We don't, but the suggestion was brought up that there are, um, there's another state that's attempting to um, file legal action in federal court. And uh, we, we just put that in there to leave our options open to us. Legislative leadership isn't mandating masks for the special session, even though there are lawmakers who are coming from hotspots around the state. Uh, would this legislation shield them or the governor from liability? No, it wouldn't. And really those sorts of decisions um, are already immune. We already can't sue people for those decisions. Um, Idaho Code 6904, the first uh, paragraph there, says that discretionary um, decisions are barred from being uh, able to be sued for. Um, that was pretty poor grammar, but I think you get the idea. Um, so the, there's absolute immunity for those sorts of decisions already. And that, that runs contrary to some urban myths that are growing out there about what the bill might do. Um, but it even says, if discretion is abused, you still can't sue under those circumstances. Um, and so there are um, a number of things that are already removed from being able to um, grant people the ability to sue. Are you personally comfortable meeting without masks next week? I'll be wearing a mask when I'm not speaking. I'll be uh, practicing social distancing as much as I can. Um, I think that we have the potential to uh, in the legislature to have a higher than average vulnerable population and we need to uh, certainly respect that and um, treat our colleagues with um, the sort of deference that they deserve. All right, Representative Greg Cheney, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Special sessions by their very nature are limited in scope and usually that isn't an issue. But with the effects of COVID-19 being felt in every aspect of society, a number of ideas, concerns and proposals won't be heard until at least the general session in January. And as the school year starts in districts across the state, whether online or in person, lawmakers won't take up any education related issues at all at the special session, despite some legislators having proposed proposals ready to go. On Thursday, I spoke to Senator Lori Den Hartog, who served on the Education Working Group this summer, about why she feels that's a mistake. Thanks so much for joining us today. What were some of the proposals on the table from the Education Working Groups? Yeah, thank you, Melissa, so much for having me on. We had uh, several different proposals that we had the opportunity to discuss as a working group. Um, some of those were around funding flexibility so that school districts could respond to their local needs, um, depending on what uh, they needed and what their plans were for this coming school year. And I think that was an important piece. We had a couple pieces of legislation around funding flexibility. Uh, we also had a piece of legislation around the authority to um, close schools. 
that one was a little bit more controversial. Uh, there, there's some confusion right now in state code about whether or not the health districts have the authority to close schools. And some of the districts were uh, concerned that local school boards, the elected officials for those school boards, um, didn't have clear authority um, above and beyond the health boards. Were you surprised that the governor didn't include any education proposals in the special session proclamation? I was surprised. Um, you know, I mentioned some of the proposals we talked about, but we never uh, got to talk about some of the education proposals that I had been working on. And I had been working on some with some colleagues, uh, including Representative Horman. And we really have felt that uh, students and parents in particular were not included in any of the legislation that the working groups were discussing. Uh, so we had draft legislation ready to go. There was a meeting scheduled um, on Thursday last week uh, to discuss uh, several pieces of legislation that would have been specific to the needs of parents and families and students. Um, and we never even heard those. So I'm not only disappointed that no education issues made it uh, into the special session, I'm particularly disappointed that we didn't uh, get to hear or discuss uh, proposals that would help uh, families right now immediately. I think, you know, People are just experiencing a lot of different things and trying to figure out how to make it work. And we haven't provided them with any resources to do that. Are you comfortable sharing some of those proposals that you were working on with Representative Foreman? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as I talk to friends and family members and constituents, um, the overwhelming thing on everyone's mind the last few weeks was trying to figure out what the school year was going to look like for their kids. And people were, I, I've heard so many options. People were talking about setting up uh, mini learning pods or bringing in tutors or having to change their work schedule, if it was possible to work from home, working from home more so that they could be there uh, to assist uh, their children or child, uh, either in a totally virtual setting or a hybrid setting. I know some districts are looking at doing a hybrid model. Uh, so we had a proposal that would have put financial resources directly into the hands of parents and families to assist them with the costs associated uh, with doing some of those things. Things like uh, tutoring services, uh, additional internet services. We know parents are struggling with uh, bandwidth and you know, just whether or not they even have service in their home if, they're, if their schools are going fully virtual. And I think the other concern too, and this was in one of the proposals, uh, that parents could spend money on um, therapeutic services. I know the needs of those children who are on uh, individualized education plans, um, there's a concern about whether or not their needs are fully being met. And if they're not in school receiving those services, uh, parents are looking for other places for their kids' needs to be met. Were you given a reason why that wasn't brought up um, in a meeting, much less a special session? Uh, one of the reasons that we heard given was that it was just too complex of an issue to deal with in the special session. Uh, I really push back on that notion. I think we've seen the executive branch implement um, 
policies and things that have directly helped um, employees and employers in a short amount of time. They've been very, very creative. We had the small business grants uh, that were put out very quickly using CARES dollars. And I think we had a real opportunity to be a leader in Idaho in education by providing these resources directly uh, to families. So again, I was just, I was very disappointed that we didn't even get to discuss those things. You know, the bills uh, being considered during the special session have been described as consensus legislation. What were some of the points of contention in the Education Committee that might have precluded those bills from being considered? You know, I think some would have seen, you know, our proposal that would have put financial resources directly into the hands of families as something like an education savings account or a voucher, which seems to be a dirty word <laughs> in education circles, but that wasn't what we were trying to do. The proposal was limited to this school year, was limited to the needs that we've heard from uh, parents and constituents and how they're trying to help their kids. And they're partnering with their local school districts. So in many cases, you know, everyone's doing the best that they can and making plans and those plans are dynamic and they're changing and every individual family has different needs depending on the plans that their district is putting out so you know we try to pare it down uh, to be as narrow as possible you know those other issues like education savings accounts uh, are are more complex it is a bigger debate and that is uh, appropriate for a regular session uh, so that was why we felt like the proposal that we had was narrow and could have been considered at a special session. By the time the general session rolls around in January, we're already going to be a semester into the school year. By then, is it going to be too late for not just your uh, proposal that you were working on with Representative Horman, but for other education proposals that the working group put forward? I think certainly we have lost the fall. Um, and I think that is a real tragedy that we have left um, parents just floundering on their own. And again, they're all doing the best that they can and scrambling. I just read an article yesterday that was talking about how parents feel abandoned. They just don't have any other resources. No one's come to say, here, we're gonna come alongside you and provide you these resources and you can figure out you know, what the resources are that you need to help this you know, work for your kids in this time. So I don't think the pandemic is going away. Certainly for the school year, we would have lost a full semester. Um, and as you know, legislation typically doesn't move too quickly. So even if we got to it early in session, uh, there's a chance that it wouldn't be implemented um, you know, even until February or March, even if we had something with, um, with an emergency clause uh, for enactment. But I, still, but I still think they're important. <laughs> Senator Den Hartog, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me on. While some lawmakers say the special session should take up more bills, others aren't convinced a special session is necessary at all. On Friday morning, I spoke to Representative Melissa Wintrow, the Democratic candidate for state Senate in District 19, about her concerns. Thanks so much for joining us, Representative Wintrow. You had an op-ed expressing disappointment in the special session, um, and particularly the pieces of legislation that aren't included. What do you wish the legislature were taking up in the special session? 
Well, thanks, Melissa, for having me on the show. Yeah, I, I'm pretty disappointed that we're even having a special session right now, unless it was really focused on how to control this virus and the health and safety needs of our community. You know, there are real a lot of people really struggling right now, you know, paying the bills, paying their rent, buying groceries trying to figure out how to get to work. Um, I wish we would focus on the lives of everyday Idahoans instead of some of the conspiracy theories and ideologies and the kind of the infighting that I'm seeing that's going on in the Republican Party, which is so unfortunate. But there are issues that you said in your op-ed that need to be addressed specifically surrounding elections and the ability to conduct those safely and effectively. Yeah, you know, the current bills that are being introduced, I'm, I, I try to talk to Phil McGrain a little bit about those, my own clerk. I'm still not fully convinced that those are necessary. Um, I can understand, the one thing I do support is he's requesting a week's time to start entering the data. The clerks are asking, instead of counting all the ballots on election day, give us, you know, let us start opening them a week ahead so we can have all the information out because of the expected increase in ballot numbers through the mail, which I totally get that. I'm still not sure how shrinking from 45 to 30 days will impact voters. I understand that's going to help them with staffing issues, et cetera, and preparing the ballot, but Still, we need to answer the questions of, will the voters see an impact and how will that affect their ability to get their ballots in? And the big question I do have is on the voting centers. Right now, the way it's written, and as I'm understanding it, it would limit the number of places that somebody could go and vote. Right now, there are polls everywhere. It's accessible. It's easy. Uh, voting centers, I think, might increase crowds and increase public health and safety issues. So I'm not convinced on the voting center either. Um, so I will look forward to testimony and learning more about that issue since I didn't sit on that committee. You, you said that you wish that if, if there were a special session that lawmakers were, would consider um, proposals to get the virus under control and to help families in need right now. And some of those are fairly complex issues. And meanwhile, the governor said what you'll be considering next week are consensus pieces of legislation. Do you think you could have reached a consensus on some of the issues that you've brought up? Uh, probably not. <laughs> um, you know, it seems so, I'm just so dumbfounded these last several months that we've politicized a public health issue. I mean, this is a deadly virus. Uh, we've seen young people, middle-aged people and older people die from this virus. It's not just the common flu. And I think we're treating it in a very cavalier way. Um, and I have heard even on our governor's calls with legislators, just such differing opinions about whether we should use masks or not. Well, it's not about an opinion. There are medical experts who have told us through their research that if you wear a mask, that's one of the best ways to reduce the risk of getting the virus. It doesn't eliminate it for sure, but it will reduce the, um, the spread because it is a respiratory virus. So 
Um, I don't think we would have come to consensus on that either, or some of the other health issues that I think are necessary. So I guess that's why I don't, I really am not convinced a special session is necessary. I think the whole, com the whole process has been very convoluted over the summer. And it's really taught me that if you stomp enough and kick your feet hard enough, you might get your way. <laughs> but I still don't think the folks that were kicking and screaming got their way because they wanted to control the governor's authority and his ability to spend the federal dollars. And that's not what we're addressing. Representative Wintrow, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. For my full interview with Representative Wintrow, listen to the latest Idaho Reports podcast, Web Extra. You can get our daily coronavirus updates and online extras in audio form. Search for Idaho Reports on your favorite podcast player, including Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts, and make sure you subscribe. Thanks for watching. For updated numbers and analysis throughout the week, make sure you're following Idaho Reports on Facebook and Twitter. We'll see you next week, and stay safe, Idaho. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.